I'm Meg Malone, Vermont Edition digital producer. And I'm Vermont Edition producer Sam Gale-Rosen. Earlier this summer, Vermont Edition spoke with the leading candidates in the gubernatorial race, hearing their views on the top issues facing the state in a series we called Meet the Candidates. In advance of the Vermont primary on August 9th, we've gathered our conversations with all five candidates together in one podcast. In June, Jane Lindholm spoke with Republican Phil Scott about his positions on gun control, marijuana legalization, health care, and more. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Phil Scott, nice to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Jane. So fiscal responsibility and economic growth really is your top priority, what you've stated as your platform um, as you run for governor. And that's something that most governors actually state as a, a top priority is fiscal responsibility and economic growth. You say on your website, a Phil Scott administration will never propose and I will never sign an annual state budget that grows more than the economy or inflation-adjusted wages did in the prior year. What are you prepared to scale back on to make that happen? Well, I think we do have to prioritize on efficiencies as much as possible. Uh, what's happened over the last six or, uh, six years or so has been uh, that we're spending more than we're taking in. We're growing the budget at a rate of uh, about 5% when uh, the economy has been growing at a rate much lower than that, around 2%. And so it always leaves a gap. Every year, there's a deficit. And every year, the legislature has to raise taxes and fees in order to satisfy that. And from my standpoint, I've been in business for a long time. Uh, I'm frugal by nature. Uh, I understand that I can't uh, necessarily just raise my prices in order to satisfy my spending wants. And so I think that we all have to uh, tighten our belts. Uh, we're going to have to look for efficiencies. There are uh, some to be made. I think eventually, if we can focus on the economy, though, and grow the uh, the revenues rather organically, that we won't have to f- force the issue by raising taxes and fees. And And again, it's this lack of focus over the last number of years for economic uh, development that has me concerned and frustrated. Uh, because you just look back two years ago, uh, there were 1,211 bills that were introduced in the biennium. Out of those 1,211 bills, there were about 30 uh, that would have had a positive effect on the economy. And out of the 30, only about three passed. So it doesn't tell me that we focus at all on uh, economic development. And I think that that should be the focus. You've been in a, a unique perspective to watch this process unfolding in the last several years. So you must see things then that you say, if I were governor, that would not happen. We would not be spending state money on that. Can you name a couple of the things that you would say, let's take those out to, to get that belt tightening? Well, certainly I think that we should be uh, setting parameters when you build a budget instead of uh, going through. And, and, in my, and I should add, in my personal life and, and in business, I ask myself a couple of basic questions. Uh, and, and sometimes I don't like the answer, but it's about want and need. I ask myself, do I want it or do I need it? And uh, sometimes I don't like the answer when I when I want that new motorcycle and it's really uh, just uh, it's not a need but just a want. And, so what's and, the motorcycle in state government then? What are, what are we spending on that you think is a want? We have uh, again. You look at the parameters that I would set. Uh, I would set the, uh, the the amount of money that we spend first, uh, and then build it from there. And there are a lot of different ideas on on what we can do to get there, but we don't go over a certain limit. And I think you set that that line in the sand right off the bat. You, you sit down with legislative leaders and you talk about where you're going to go, where you're not, set the, the goals of the administration, set the goals of the legislature, and have those honest conversations 
first rather than after the fact, after all the wants and needs are thrown in there, and then it's difficult to walk back on. But uh, certainly when you see the growth in in so many different areas, Medicaid for one, uh, when a third of our population is on some sort of form of Medicaid. And, and that's not something to be proud of in, in one respect, uh, because what we should be doing is finding ways uh, to to help people prosper and so they don't have to be involved in those programs. But also, when you look at the administration of uh, of Medicaid itself, it's grown by about $100 million over the last six or seven years. So again, there's areas of savings right within state government. I think that we have to, to learn how to react in a 21st century economy and uh, a 21st century government. Like, why is it that when you look at uh, setting up a business, that you have to go through three different departments to set up a business. It should be almost one-stop shopping. Why do you physically have to go into motor vehicle to get your license and sit there and wait and wait and wait and, and, and make changes of that nature? I think that there are areas that we can uh, – there's duplication. We have too many silos. We need to reconfigure government in a much more 21st century efficient way. And we'll find those savings because when you look at the $5.5 billion we spend – and I know a lot of that is federal money. I, I understand that and leveraged against other, other dollars, state dollars. But when you really think about it, what we're trying to save is about a, a penny per dollar, a penny. We think about that in our, again in our own lives, and I'm sure we can find a penny for every dollar we spend somewhere. There's efficiencies to be made. So I'm going to push you on specifics again. And you mentioned Medicaid. Um, one of the, the factors in Vermont is that we have very generous eligibility guidelines compared to many other states. If you want to save money on Medicaid, is that an area where you see that we should um, maybe not be quite as generous in our eligibility guidelines in order to save money in that area? Well, the two parts of that question uh, as well, uh, I think that we should be going in to make sure that everyone's qualified. And uh, I've said that for quite some time now, and the administration is now reacting and finding, actually, uh, that uh, there are a number of people enrolled in the program that maybe shouldn't be there. So I think that that's, uh, that's the first step, is just making sure that those who are, who are in need uh, get the services they, they, uh, they need to, uh, to survive. And, uh, and we have to take care of our most vulnerable. That's, that's part of who we are. That's part of our DNA. We, we need to do that. But we can't, uh, we don't need to, uh, we don't want to take care of those that can take care of themselves. We need to inspire uh, more. We need to have a more uh, prosperous economy so that people can be more responsible for their, for their own lives. And, and, I, and I think that builds self-esteem as well, uh, to inspire those to help themselves uh, gives them a different outlook and a different perspective. And I think that we have a role to play in giving a helping hand, not a handout. So um, I think that that is an area that we have to have to look at. Um, but at the same time, if we can grow the, uh, this economy and, and rev it up uh, and restore some of the fundamentals and, and, and prioritize that, I believe that we'll have more money coming in organically rather than forcing the issue by raising taxes and fees and looking all the time for cuts. Although I think we need to always challenge ourselves in trying to find as many efficiencies as possible. And I've been through the ups and downs again in my own business, uh, personally as well. And uh, when you do that, um, when you face those challenges, you look yourself in the mirror and, and you find ways to do better. And uh, that's why I think competition is good because 
you can find uh, those areas where you can do better, and it forces you to change, change the way you do business. You don't get complacent, and uh, and I think that we we don't we can't get complacent. We have to react to our taxpayers. Uh, it's real money to them, and uh, we're facing this crisis of affordability in Vermont that uh, we all have to uh, take a part in to try and work ourselves out of. We're talking with Lieutenant Governor Phil Scott, who's hoping to be the next governor of Vermont. Carolyn in Northfield says Lieutenant Governor Scott has stated that any budget he submits wouldn't grow faster than the state economy. How would he measure economic growth for the purpose of this comparison? There are a number of different measures you can go back to federally. Uh, and, and what I've said is uh, that I would go back. I know a number of candidates uh, have said uh, that they would uh, limit the growth to, let's say, 2%, an arbitrary 2%. But I'm not sure that that's necessary. I think that what we should be doing is looking back on facts. And if you look back uh, to the previous year, and, and again, there are a number of, uh, of, of standards uh, that are set by uh, federal government re- requirements to show how the economy has grown. So we, we utilize that structure. And then we look at how much uh, wages have, have grown in that previous year as well. And if we come up with a, a uh, if it's 1% growth of uh, wages and the growth of the economy has grown 1%, then that's what we grow the budget at. If it's a half a percent, by half a percent, it's a half a percent. If it's three percent, it's three percent. And it's it's a known quantity rather than hoping that the economy will grow to five percent, which has been the the standard practice over the last five or six years by the legislature is is growing at a rate far exceeding uh, the natural revenues. And and that's something we have to stop. We have to show that we can live in our means as well. We expect. We expect our citizens to. We expect those who are on fixed incomes, they're retired and struggling to make ends meet. We, we expect them to live within their means. Well, I think that they're asking us to do the same thing. We have some questions that we're asking all of the candidates for governor. One of them is, is there any tax or fee in place today that you would take the steps to repeal as governor, a specific one that you know of? <laughs> well, there's a number of them that I don't like. Um, but I can think of uh, two off the top of my head that eventually I think that we should uh, we should be eliminating. I think the tax on Social Security is something that, again, I talked about uh, the folks on fixed incomes. It's like taxing a tax. And, uh, and I think that's fundamentally wrong uh, for those who are struggling, again, to make ends meet. Uh, also on military benefits, uh, that we tax them and those who – you know, have served our country and protected us, and we need to to give back. And I've made it a point uh, to to thank a vet every day at some at some forum, some function, wherever I'm at. I take a moment to thank those who've given so much to us to protect our freedoms. So we could give, we can continue to give back in that way. But there's a whole host of other ones that I think should be cleared up because of the subjectivity. Uh, you, you think back on the agricultural machinery tax. Uh, that's one that's uh, that's clearly uh, been subjective and, and something that needs to be cleaned up. Uh, I think that the soda tax is going to be one that has been controversial. Uh, it's not as clear as some might think. It's not about the sugar. It's about some ingredient. You have to be a chemist to understand what you need to tax. And I guarantee there's going to be an audit on some convenience store in the future, uh, and they're going to have not taxed a certain product. And uh, it won't be clear. And uh, and I can give you examples after examples. I, I got have a friend that had an audit done, a sales tax audit done at his uh, his uh, place of business, and they spent two hundred and forty hours there auditing him. Got him for seventeen thousand dollars, 
and uh, and they they found that he hadn't taxed work gloves. And he said, well, it's clothing. We don't tax clothing. And they said, well, no, no, actually, uh, it's work-related, so it's taxed. So again, sub- subjectivity. And I think that we need to, to change the culture of government, I think, uh, especially in the tax department, and we need to be more proactive. His point to me was, you know, if they just spent about 40 hours here telling me what I need to tax rather than 240 hours here telling me, playing the I got you routine and telling me after the fact where I don't have the money stashed away anywhere, I would have gladly t- collected the tax. But I didn't know. And uh, I think we have a responsibility to change that culture and to be helpful to our businesses so that it doesn't leave a, a bad taste in their mouth either because he has, after that, he had a bad taste in his mouth. He, you know, and it's something that was so unnecessary. Uh, one other question while we're still talking about this sort of general economy and budgeting and, and taxes, you'd like to institute a two-year budgeting cycle instead of every fiscal year a new budget right. that's proposed by the governor and debated by the legislature. Why would that help? We uh, we actually instituted a two-year budgeting cycle with the Capitol Bill uh, like three or four years ago, and it's worked very well. And uh, what I have noticed uh, in in terms of over my uh, years in the legislature is that sometimes when you're debating the um, the, the the big bill, the budget, you're, you're still debating uh, the the bill that uh, the the true up of the previous year. So it just seems like uh, it's inefficient uh, in in its uh, its makeup. So I th- I just think a two year cycle. That's why it's a two year uh, legislative session. Uh, it's a two year cycle for candidates. I just think it makes more sense to have a two year budget, and then and then you can make changes uh, mid mid year, just the same way we do now, but in a different way. And I just think it would take the the focus uh, away from uh, so many things going on at the same time, and just clearly focus on on the budget itself. Let me ask you two sort of rapid fire questions here uh, before we go to our break on marijuana. Your position on legalizing marijuana and what your policy would look like. I've uh, I've been consistent in my uh, uh, response to that. Uh, first of all, uh, I voted in favor when I was in the Senate. I voted in favor of medical marijuana. Uh, I was supportive of decriminalization, but I've said uh, not right now. I don't think we have enough information at this point. We have four other states that have legalized right now, and uh, we uh, until we have some answers to questions like impairment on our highways and the edibles and the tax structure and so forth and so on. Uh, I think that uh, I think we, we the governor of Colorado even said uh, he said if any any states my advice to any states that are looking to legalize is why don't you wait a couple of years and, uh, and they'll work some things out we'll learn from them we can't afford to make any mistakes here so I'm not saying never I'm saying not, it's the timing's not right it's not now. On gun control, this is an issue that's already come up in the gubernatorial campaign, and it's certainly something that's being discussed in national circles at the moment. Are there any specific restrictions that you would be pushing for in state law? Uh, I don't believe that we need uh, more gun restrictions in Vermont at this time. I think we should enforce the ones we have. I think we should focus more on on safety and gun education, but also addressing the violence problem that is uh, systemic across the country. And, and I don't have the answers for that, but but that's that's what's driving uh, this frustration, this outrage, and, and it's alarming. Uh, the horrific acts are alarming. But uh, 
from my standpoint, I don't believe we should. Uh, we need to change our gun laws in Vermont. So whichever Democrat you face, should you be the Republican nominee, all three Democrats that are running have said that they would like to see uh, private sales also have a background check requirement. That's not something that you'd support. It is not something I would support. Today on the show, we're talking with Republican gubernatorial candidate Phil Scott. He served as Washington County State Senator for six terms and has been lieutenant governor for the past six years. We got a note from Wayne in Bristol who says, do you take renewable energy and climate change, especially as caused by human activities, seriously? Wayne says, I question this because these important issues are not addressed on your campaign website, unlike for all the other gubernatorial candidates. I do believe that uh, the science is in and it's real. Uh, we have climate change. We only have to look out the uh, the window. We we spoke about this earlier that uh, uh, it seems as though this year uh, it, it, it's extreme. Uh, so we have to address this issue in many different ways. Uh, I've, uh, I'm a proponent of renewables, and I think that we can find areas of agreement. Whether you believe in climate change or not or is immaterial. I think there are ways, and that's the way I've, I've done business my whole political and personal and professional life is find areas that you can agree on and then work towards a solution. Because I think there are a number of people uh, out there that uh, that may not believe in climate change, but want to be self-sufficient. We, they want to be able to take care of themselves. We want to reduce our, our reliance on foreign oil and carbon carbon fuels. So to do that, I think uh, the future is, uh, I think it's in solar. I think it's in hydrogen as well, uh, by the way. Uh, I think that'll come eventually, uh, but uh, but solar is one that I'm really interested in. I think it's uh, the technology's changed so much dramatically in the last five or ten years, and and the big break breakthrough for us as a society is the storage of electricity. If we can f- break through and find a, an efficient way to to store large amounts of uh, electricity, uh, game over. Uh, you know that the, that'll solve a lot of our issues. Uh, because we'll be able to utilize renewables in a much more efficient way. So uh, I'm not in favor of uh, industrial wind. Uh, I've made that pretty clear. I don't think we need to destroy our our rich lines in order to do that. But I am in favor of uh, of finding ways uh, to coexist with solar siting and uh, to provide for some uh, screening and setbacks and so forth and putting them in the areas that they, they need to be and where we need the power. And uh, but I think that uh, the the renewables make a lot of sense. Let's go to Paula, who's calling in from Enosburg Falls. Hi, Paula. Go right ahead. Uh, hi there. Um, I feel affordable health care for everyone is the biggest problem we face, uh, especially in controlling our increasing budget. Uh, I want to know if uh, Phil Scott will support uh, universal primary care as a start to to that goal. Phil Scott. I, I believe that we uh, we do need to address uh, health care uh, in, in many different ways. I think a lot of it is uh, in prevention. Uh, obviously, uh, that's uh, it's like uh, it's like with uh, our energy. Uh, we conservation is most important in in our energy policy. I think that that gives us uh, the biggest bang for the buck. But as well in, in terms of health care, prevention is uh, essential in trying to – it's usage that we, uh, we complain about. When we talk about the costs, sometimes it's the amount of, uh, of uh, services that we use. So prevention is, is important. I look forward uh, to uh, looking at ways that we can, uh, we can 
uh, have that, have both uh, a more efficient process. I think the Green Mountain Care Board has done a pretty good job in trying to uh, curb the the increases in uh, in costs. Uh, but the the challenge is they don't seem to to reflect in in our insurance bills, and that's uh, the other uh, issue that I think that we need to address. And and a lot of it comes, goes back. And I and I am going to digress here a little bit. But we, well, before you digress, okay. I mean Paula's question was specifically, do you support universal access to primary care? And you seem like you're on I, similar pages in the sense right. that what you're talking about here is. You know, prevention, pre- negating the need for people to go to the emergency room. So, to Paula's point right. on universal primary I th- care, I think universal primary care is essential. Uh, I don't believe that a single payer uh, proposal is w- is what Vermont needs and or can afford. Uh, but I am uh, in favor of of uh, the usage, uh, universal usage. Uh, but but digressing a bit, uh, again, we have a population of 620,000 people. hasn't changed for a couple of decades, but we're losing our youth. We're losing this demographic from 25 to 45, 30,000. We've lost that 30,000 people out of the category alone since the last census. And when you when you think about uh, health care costs and so forth, our, our youth are, are, are what uh, support the rest of us uh, that are using uh, medical services more. So if we have less of them paying into the system, that's a problem. And that's the area uh, of driving, uh, you know, the the uh, the proposal of trying to focus on the economy is so important to keep become a magnet for our youth to come to Vermont as well to keep some of our youth here. And and that's going to be be essential in, in terms of health care costs as well. Sticking with the health care question here, we've got a couple of listeners who would like to push you on your position, your longstanding position now, that we should be moving to the federal exchange away from Vermont State Exchange. Bob in Bridport says, if Vermont closes its exchange and moves to the federal exchange, it seems that Vermont families making less than $70,000 a year will lose up to $1,000 in current Vermont subsidies to their health care costs. Are you okay with that, or how do you plan to close this gap for Vermont working families? And we'll piggyback that with Walter in Montpelier, who says, as a constituent of yours, I'm nervous about your wish to move the exchanges from Vermont to the federal exchanges. If you do this, many Vermonters living from paycheck to paycheck would lose the subsidies that make these exchanges, and I'm no fan of them, Walter says, affordable. How does this fit into making Vermont more affordable, and what are your thoughts on universal primary care? So, you know, both right. questions there about the, the federal exchange. I, I think I want to clear something up. Uh, I have advocated that that would be one of the options for moving forward would be the federal exchange. I think, first of all, we have to agree that their one-of-a-kind IT structure that we have in place right now, Vermont Health Connect, is a failure. It isn't working. Uh, there's, there's fewer people than ever thought to, to be a part of it. And uh, to this day, there's still problems uh, with that. We spent over $200 million on this uh, this failed experiment. So we need to fix that. And what I've said is uh, that uh, we should be I, – I, first of all, I think that we should be working with other states. I think we should be working with uh, northeast states is what I said to begin with. Uh, in fact, um, and, and again, if you look back to what I've said and what I've done, uh, I, I uh, was speaking to the lieutenant governor of uh, Connecticut – and we were talking about our woes in Vermont with our health care, Vermont Health Connect. And they said, and as well, the uh, lieutenant governor of uh, Rhode Island, and, and they have the same problems. So they said, uh, Connecticut said, well, we can help you with that. We can actually, we have an IT structure that is uh, cloud-based. We can make it autonomous 
to uh, to ours, and it'll look like your system, but you'll use our structure, and it's fully functional. We help Maryland. We can help you. So I uh, I took uh, Tim Ash, the senator uh, from uh, Chittenden, uh, chair of the Finance Committee, and as well as Jane Kitchell, uh, chair of Appropriations. We jumped in my pickup truck, and we headed off and met the uh, lieutenant governor of Connecticut with all of their people because she's in charge of their exchange. And uh, they came up with a system they said would work. In fact, they came to, to Vermont. They Right in my office showed us a model of how that would work. And they, uh, I brought the administration in. I brought uh, legislators in. I brought joint f- fiscal in. And uh, they showed us a model where they could sign us up within six months, working in tandem with them, working with them uh, with a system that does fully function. So I'm I and that was uh, it was uh, I, I guess the administration didn't didn't think uh, highly of the the opportunity because I think that the maintenance costs are going to be astronomical in the future if we go this alone and and having it coupled with other states would would give us that balance spread out the risks so I'm saying either and and Hawaii uh, actually had a system similar to ours they decided to go with the federal exchange but they kept a portion of theirs as well. So there are other opportunities to look at other states working with tandem, in tandem with them to get the same thing. And, and I think that we first have to get the structure working. Uh, and if it goes to the federal chain, so be it. Uh, and I think that we'll supplement those, uh, those subsidies. because How people, would you do that? Cause how, so, so that's the question, I, I think. I think there'll be, there'll be savings uh, in, in trying to, to work with others. Um, and so you again, would preserve the subsidies that Vermonters I, currently I get we, we under have the state to. exchange? Yes, I'm, because they need help. I mean, obviously, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the rates in Vermont are much higher than the rest of the nation, probably because of our community rating, probably because of our demographics that I spoke about before. Uh, all that enters into having a higher cost in Vermont of uh, of doing business for healthcare. Um, but let's just say if we could uh, partner up with another uh, couple of states, spread the risks out a little bit, utilize some of their plans, maybe more competition. Uh, I think we could uh, actually have uh, lower costs, uh, lower uh, rates than we've had previously. So I think there's a, a lot of opportunity, but we have to uh, to be cognizant of the fact that we don't have to do this alone. Uh, that we can work with other states in order to accomplish the same thing because we're all facing the same issues. In fact, integrated eligibility. There's a program the governor wanted to spend a hundred million dollars to to set that up, and he finally pulled the plug on that. But they told me in Connecticut. They, in fact, they text me when they read that on on uh, in Digger. I think uh, they said, "Don't don't don't forget that we could probably do this in in conjunction with the health exchange that we were talking about for about ten million dollars, ten percent of the cost of what was being projected." So those are the areas that we can find significant savings. But we have to be willing to work with others because we're too small a state to do everything on our own. Act 46 is the school consolidation bill and district consolidation bill that went into effect in this past budgeting cycle. Jackie and Tom in Weathersfield say Act 46 was originally marketed as a solution to saving education costs. Shouldn't we have just passed an education funding law last session, repealed Act 46, and avoided this inefficient game of musical chairs being played out all over the state with no clear solution in sight? Well, let's let's go back a little bit uh, over the last decade. Uh, I think uh, you would agree that uh, Vermonters have been screaming for relief uh, from their property tax uh, uh, bills, and uh, and when they'd have uh, each election, they would be screaming for relief, and and uh, politicians would say, uh, "We get it, we get it. We're going to do something now. We're going to fix this." 
and they come back and and they wouldn't do anything. Uh, and finally, uh, the legislature reacted and they came up with Act 46. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, are there some clarifications that need to be made within Act 46? I believe so. I think that uh, uh, it was sold on the fact that it included long-term uh, cost containment as well as preservation of school choice. And uh, I don't think that's clear. And, and I think that we need to, uh, we need to uh, tweak Act 46 uh, in order to make sure those two items are, are addressed. But uh, again, if we don't, uh, we have a situation right now. And, and again, I, I'll keep going back to our economy, our, our, uh, our demographics and so forth. We're educating 20,000 less kids than we were 20 years ago. That's part of the problem. 86,000 kids, and it's costing us a billion and a half, billion six to do so. Uh, that's, it's our spending on, on those 86,000 that we have to address. And uh, that's not easy. And I feel for the school boards that have had to, uh, to uh, wrestle with this uh, over the last few months. But some of them are going to have some savings in the future. But it's going to take some consolidation. It's going to take a lot of work. It's, it, it, Act 46, if it did nothing else... It started the conversation, and uh, that's the tough conversations we need to have in order to uh, uh, to uh, reduce the costs of education and reduce our burden on taxpayers as well as as uh, this crisis of affordability that we're facing. Is there a magic number of public schools in the state that we I, I should have? I don't think you can go with a broad brush. I think you have to do do it individually as well because there's some schools. I, I went to Linden Institute. They do a great job up there, an amazing school when you think about what they do. They live within their means, uh, but they, they give a great quality education to so many, and that's an independent school. Um, so uh, I think they do a great job. And there's other small schools that do a great – Crassbury, they do a great job up there. And their costs aren't maybe – I don't know, individually, but some of these small schools, their costs aren't that significant. So to use a broad brush and say, you know, these schools have to close, I don't think that's the approach we need to take. I think we have to look at it individually. And we have to work together and develop, uh, you know, an education that, that delivers a high-quality education in a 21st century way. And that's going to be uh, a lot of these discussions are going to have to take place all over Vermont. But building more families, bringing more kids in is part of the answer, too. I'm going to give you 30 seconds on this. You you also have a proposal to go to a 90-day legislative session that would shorten the, the session. It would end probably by the end of March if we started at the same time. Why? Yeah, because uh, as I've seen over the last number of years, uh, I think you need to prioritize. I think that uh, I think as well, if you had a 90-day calendar session where you could tell somebody uh, April 1, you'll be out of here, I think it will bring a, a, a different uh, perspective to the legislative uh, arena. I think people, more people would run from different backgrounds. And I think, I, I think the Citizens' Legislature in Vermont is part of what makes us unique. And I want to preserve that. And to do that, we have to allow people to run and to be able to do that, take time off from work in order to, to get involved. And so the 90-day session is something that's doable, and I think that we could get our work done, prioritize, and have more people involved in the process. Phil Scott is the current lieutenant governor, hoping to be governor next year, running for the Republican nomination. Thanks very much for being Thanks with us. Thanks very much, Jane. That was Vermont Edition's Jane Lindholm speaking with Republican candidate for governor Phil Scott.
For more from the candidates for governor, head to VPR.net, where you'll find all of our coverage of the gubernatorial race, including debates between the Republican and Democratic candidates, AMAs with each of the candidates, and the latest news on the campaigns. And, of course, tune into Vermont Edition on Wednesday, August 10th at noon and 7 p.m. for results and analysis of Tuesday's primary. I'm Meg Malone. And I'm Sam Gale Rosen. Thanks for listening. 